Good morning. How's everybody today? I'm starting a timer. I want to try to get us out of here appropriately. I know everybody's... Are you nervous? Raise your hand if you're nervous about the storm. Okay, only my children. That means y'all are in a good spot. That's excellent. That is excellent. They're just nervous because they're afraid it's going to mess up a trip. That's what they're nervous about. Let's just be honest. Um, David, really appreciate you sharing about that song this morning. I love this. It was so appropriate for today um, in terms of, or not just today, but this study. You know, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews and there's this um, constant, I, I, I use the word in the message and I've used it before, kind of argument, but not that, the, that there's an argument happening, but the, the author of Hebrews is laying out this case that Jesus is greater than, than the, the priest of old, that he is the high priest that everybody's been looking for. And so I love this morning in that song, the dynamic of, you know, when God descended on Mount Sinai, it says that the glory of the Lord came. Um, but now, because of Jesus, a more certain glory has arrived. And so I love, love starting with that this morning. Thank you for sharing that with us. So last week, we, we talked about this mysterious character, uh, Melchizedek. And, and we, we talked about a lot last week how in all of the rest of Scripture, anytime a major character uh, is, is talked about, we see this genealogy that comes before that character or after that character to kind of show the connection of that character with the rest of God's people. And a great example of that that I mentioned last week is if you look in, in the first chapter of Matthew, you're going to see this whole genealogy of Jesus before the announcement of his birth because the, the author Matthew, the disciple, is trying to help people to understand that this is not just some guy, not just some good guy that people were looking up to, but he is the promised Messiah. And the author of Hebrews is doing the same thing throughout this book, is trying to help the church who are faltering in their faith or, or, or tempted to, to go back to their Jewish heritage. He's trying to help them understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And we're going to look into that a little bit more today. He makes this, this whole argument um, around this person, this King Melchizedek. And, and what we talked about last week is that there was no genealogy. And in fact, the author of Hebrews points out that there's no genealogy that comes along because the, the point that he's trying to make is not um, one about heredity, but rather of topology. He's trying to say that Melchizedek represents the kind of king, the kind of priest that Jesus was going to be. So today we're going to pick up in chapter 7, verses uh, 4 through 11. Before we read that, I want to I just tie this into this morning, something that the Lord has done. Um, today, we're gonna, the title of the sermon is Giving Good Gifts. We're going to talk about money today, okay? And Leah, we were praying beforehand, and, and we always ask for prayer requests. And, and I told her I wanted to pray because my heart today um, is that, that the Lord would speak to each of us where we are. Today is not about putting more money in the offering plate. It's not about church income. This is about how we approach the Father. And I love that David shared this morning the story of uh, the rich young ruler because what Jesus was trying to deal with was not um, just a list of rules. He was addressing a heart issue. That's why he told the rich young ruler to sell all his possessions because he knew that in, the, in this young ruler's heart, that his possessions held the greatest place. And so what Jesus is communicating is that in order to follow me, in order to, to really know me, I have to be in that position. And so my prayer for us today as we, as we dive into this passage, as we talk about giving good gifts, is that all of our hearts would be centered around the fact that all of this is about Jesus having the proper place in our heart. So as the Lord begins to speak to you today about the gifts that you give, whether that's here at church or outside of the church context, I want us to all understand and be focused on the fact that this is about 
us and our relationship with Jesus, not about how much money you're giving to the church. We all agree on that? Okay, all right, let's move forward. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 4 through 10. It says, now consider how great this man was, talking about Melchizedek. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of, of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth. But in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham. For he was still within his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. So anytime I'm preparing a message, I look at the text that God gives us and I ask myself several questions, but one of the ones that I always kind of start with is, what's the significance behind what's being said? In this case, in a book like Hebrews, where an author is writing to someone else, the first thing I want to answer for me before I can answer it for you is, what is the author trying to communicate? What's he trying to say? Today, he's focusing on this gift, this gift that Abraham gives to Melchizedek. This whole section has been on Jesus as the great high priest. And so with that in mind, what's the significance of Abraham giving Melchizedek a gift? We're going to address this a little later, but for now I want to start with us understanding the cultural significance of an offering. What is an offering and when did all of that begin? And as you will probably realize by now, um, one of the things that we've learned over the last several years is that if we want to understand the New Testament, we've got to go back to the Old Testament and specifically back to Adam and Eve's story and what happened in the garden and how that has affected all of our relationships. So this morning, I want us to flip to Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And this is after the fall. This is after Adam and Eve have been um, ejected from the garden. And it says, Then man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, the sin or sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So I want to point out a couple of things. In this particular translation, it says that the Lord had regard for, or the Lord did not have regard for. You can also translate it as the Lord rejected, okay, or the Lord received. So he received Abel's offering, and he rejected Cain's. And there's been a lot of speculation over why God rejected, but like I like to do, let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to jump forward in the book of Hebrews a little bit. And I want you to see what the author of Hebrews has to say about it, because this is going to inform how we look at this chunk for today. So Hebrews 11 chapter 4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man, because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still, still speaks through his faith. And so we look at this passage of scripture about Cain and Abel, and we see that Abel's gift was acceptable because of what? His faith, his relationship with the Lord. 
One of the commentaries I read this week, and I put this up on the screen and in the handout, it says God's response toward Cain and Abel, therefore, was not due to the nature of the gift per se, whether it was grain or animal, but the integrity of the giver. The narrative ties together the worshiper and his offering as God considers the merit of their individual worship. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look on with favor. Both the giver and the gift under the scrutiny of God, Cain's offering did not measure up because he retained the best of his produce for himself. For the writer of Hebrews, um, for the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 4, Abel's offering was accepted because it was offered in faith. As Luther noted, the faith of the individual was the weight which added the value to Abel's offering. Unlike a human observer, God sees the condition of the human heart and weighs the motive of the worshiper. Elsewhere, Scripture shows that the Lord requires of the giver an obedient and upright heart. So in this first appearance of an offering that we see in Scripture, right after the story of Adam and Eve, after sin has entered the world, and Adam and Eve are having to figure out life, trying to raise the first two boys that ever lived. Can you imagine? Think about that for just a minute. That just hit me. I'm raising some boys, but I had a lot of people ahead of me that raised some boys who could tell me about it. Matter of fact, I was a boy once. Adam and Eve didn't have that luxury. Wow. So in this first appearance, sin gets in the way. And it nullified the gift and, and spawned jealousy that ended the life of Abel. You see, what the author is trying to communicate, what the Lord wants us to understand today is that in order for a gift to be good, the heart behind it is significant. You know how when people say, and this is a little bit on a lighter note, I mean this kind of in jest, but you know when people say, oh, it's the thought that counts. Do they ever say that when it's a good gift? They do not. They say that when it's not a great gift because they're trying to say, well, I thought about you. But what does that communicate about their heart? I was thinking about this this week when I, when I was preparing for this, thinking about gifts. And I want you to think about this. Think about the gifts that you've been given over the course of your life. And ask yourself which ones have been the most significant to you. Sometimes a really expensive gift is nice, but often the one that means the most are the ones that show that the person that gave it to you was really thinking about you. That they knew what you wanted or what you needed and that gift has significance because of the heart that came behind it. Now, on the opposite side of that coin, when you get a gift that's not great, it communicates the, 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 the opposite, right? That there was not a lot of thought. Like, when I was about eight or nine years old, I had a family member who gave me a can of spinach for Christmas. That's not a joke. That really happened. And this person was, it wasn't that they didn't have money. It's an uncle. Sometimes it's just an uncle thing, Okay. The person that gives you gifts like that, often they do it out of obligation, not out of love. Now, I'm not saying my uncle didn't love me, but I'm saying that his nieces and nephews were not his first thought on his mind. I think, if I remember correctly, I had a sibling who also got a half a jar of peanut butter that same Christmas, okay? So look, let's just, that's not a good gift, right? We can agree on that. I mean, unless you really like half-eaten jars of peanut butter, um, but, it, but here's the point, is the heart, the intention behind the gift is significant. And that's what the Lord wants us to see this morning. That as we think about the gifts that we give, like I said, whether that is in this realm with the gifts that we give to the Lord, or if it's in the realm of the, the way we give gifts to other people, the motivation, the heart, the integrity behind that is the most important part because it, it informs 
the receiver of the gift about how you feel about them. And we want, to, we want our hearts to be in the right place. God rejected Cain's gift because there was no heart behind it. It says in the scripture that, that Cain gathered up some of his produce, whereas Abel gave his firstborn. And there's some significance to that. Your firstborn are always the ones you're the most excited about. They're the ones who represent the promises. They're the ones who, who you've put all of this work into raising these animals. And this is the fruit of your labor. And so Abel is giving the best of the best to the Lord. Cain gave out of obligation, not love. And Abel gave out of love, out of the relationship that he had with the Lord. And I, and I want you to think about the degrees of separation that are happening here. It says in Scripture that God literally walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so Cain and Abel have grown up with these parents who are telling these stories about walking with God. It's not like God was this thing high in the sky at this point, I don't believe. It's not like me telling my kids about this distant relative that they've never met. It's about me telling them about a brother or a father that they know that's there that they can have a relationship with. See, it's easy to think about Cain and Abel and say, well, you know, they didn't really know God. And, and that's purely speculation on my part, I'll be honest. But I want us to think about the fact that when we give gifts, the proximity of the people around us is significant. And the way we give those gifts to those people are. Jesus teaches about this with his disciples in Luke chapter 20 and 21. I want us to look at chapter 20, verses 45 through 47. We're going to break it down a little bit. Because Jesus makes a point about talking about the heart of a giver. In, in chapter 20, verse 45 through 47, it says, while all people were listening, he said to the disciples, he said to the disciples, so all the people around are listening, but he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes, who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long player, prayers just for show. This will receive harsher judgment. See, prior to this is when the Sadducees are questioning Jesus. You remember this story when they say um, uh, a man dies and his brother marries his wife, which was the custom then to take care of her and her, and her children. When they both die and go to heaven, who's she married to? Okay, so the Sadducees are just, they're just nitpicking and they're trying to catch Jesus in a trap, trying to trip him up. So on the heels of that, Jesus says to all of those that have just listened to this interaction with the Sadducees, and the scribes, by the way, worked for the Sadducees, they were experts in the law. He says, watch out for these guys, because they're not up to good. They're up to harm others, to, to devour widows' houses, which means they will take the money from, from people that don't have to give it. And on the heels of that, Jesus takes this teachable moment to show the truth of what he's trying to say. He, look at this um, in, in chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, because Jesus points out two very different approaches to giving. The first one that we just looked at with the scribes and the Sadducees, it was all about the way people perceived them. It was all about them. But then look at verse 20, or chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. It said, he looked up. Now this happens all in the same moment. He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offering into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping two tiny coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For these people have put in gifts out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. The integrity of our gifts reveals the condition of our heart. That's what Jesus is pointing out. 
is that these rich guys, these Sadducees, these scribes who were wealthy, give large gifts, but they didn't mean anything to them. Their meaning was found in the fact that people saw them giving these big gifts. But for this widow, she gave the last of what she had, and hers came not out of obligation, but out of love, out of heart. And we know that because Jesus knows the hearts of the people around us. He's proved that through the rest of Scripture. And so he's saying to the the disciples, look at these two types of givers. I don't care about the size of the gift. I care about the heart of the person that's giving it. The author is drawing on this knowledge in this argument in in the letter to the Hebrews. He knows that they know these stories. He knows that they know the story of Cain and Abel. He knows that they've heard the stories of what Jesus has done with these these people. And he's purposely showing a division in the Levitical line because people knew the Pharisees. They knew the Sadducees. They knew the scribes. They knew the kind of people that they were. And I know that I'm painting them kind of with a broad stroke. But the author of Hebrews is doing this as well. He's very purposely, we talked about this last week, saying that Jesus is not of the Levitical line. He is the type like Melchizedek. He's trying to show them that Jesus is not just another priest, that he's better than those priests. The author is making the point to the church that um, one, one of the ways that they can know that Jesus was greater than the priest of Levi's is because of this gift that Abraham gives to Melchizedek. Remember, the Levitical priests were honored by the giving of a tithe. Remember back in the Old Testament when, when, Jesus, I mean, when God set up the 12 tribes of Hebrew and he said that the priest will come out of the tribe of Levi. And all of the other 11 tribes gave a tithe, 10% of all that they had on a regular basis. And that is what was received by the Levites and that's how they earned their living. Right? Or they didn't, well, I guess you could say they earned it, but that was their income, was the gifts. And so Jesus, he's saying in this, in this statement that the gift um, that, that Abraham is about to give is of greater honor. He says the Levitical priests were honored by the giving of the tithe, but here through Abraham, the giving honor to Melchizedek in his line, which is Jesus. Look at, the, look at the scripture with me again, chapter 7, verse 4 through 10. Now consider how great this man was. He's talking about Melchizedek. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people. Okay? They have a command to collect a tenth from the people, from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage, talking about Jesus, collected a tenth from Abraham, excuse me, talking about Melchizedek, and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. So he's pointing out, and and one of the commentaries that I read this week by Dr. George Guthrie talks about how in explaining this passage, often we struggle with this because our family dynamics are different. But he, he taught some brothers and sisters of the Messianic faith in Israel, and they understand the logic that's happening behind this story. The idea is that the Levites were participants in the giving of the tithe was common logic for these people. That because they were the descendants of Abraham, by Abraham giving a tithe to Melchizedek, the Levites also were giving a tithe to Melchizedek. The actions of the patriarch here, Abraham, spoke for the whole family forever. By Abraham giving a tithe, by giving a gift to Melchizedek, 
the Levites, therefore, also were giving that gift. This week, I don't know if you, how many of you guys see these, but Russ wrote and published an article um, about God's call for Abraham to leave his family. And it's significant to what we're talking about here because it's going to inform us about the value of the gift that Abraham gives. Um, it's a great article, and I've got the link on the screen. I can give it to you after, but I want to read two excerpts from it. It says, for a long time when I read Genesis 12, which starts answering the questions of humanity's view of God problem, raised in Genesis 11, about Abraham leaving his father's house, the American experience is the, is the primary context I brought to the passage. Here was a 75-year-old Abraham just now making his way out from under his dad's roof. It was his chance to shine, to make something of himself, to set out to conquer the world. He had, he had had to have been giddy, finally, to get going with the rest of his life. I thought. The only problem with reading the Abraham story this way is that it's wrong. In a culture lacking a government safety net, the Bet-Ab, the father's house, was everything. God's call Abraham to Abraham in Genesis 12 then was nothing like I imagined. God wasn't asking Abraham to finally set out on his own personal adventure. No, God was asking Abraham to die, or rather to trust that God would do for him all the things his father's house did. Give him food, work, community, purpose, and structure. In some, life. Abraham's response to Yahweh's call required and demonstrated enormous faith in a God he just met. Do you see what Russ is saying? Is that that family structure was everything. There was no God. If you right now pick up and you move across the country, when you get there, the things you can count on is that there's a government in place that's going to take care of the entire community. You don't have to worry about somebody breaking in your house every day, stealing all your stuff, because there is a government agency that handles that, the police department, right? They're going to protect you. You don't have to worry about, am I going to be able to find something to eat? Because you're going to be able to find a job, or even if you can't, there are government agencies that are going to help you with that if you can't get food. And so what God's telling Abraham to do, because none of that existed, was to move away from his family to another land where all of that was gone. And so here's Abraham, who's been promised this massive family. Remember, he went with Lot. They had to separate because there wasn't enough for him. And then if you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that these nine kingdoms came in and raided that area and they captured Lot and all his family and took them away. And Abraham left with 318 fighting men that were in his family. That gives you an idea how big his crew was that he brought with him. He takes these 318 men and they travel across that entire region chasing down four of these kingdoms and they defeat them, take all of the spoils that these four, this is like their legacy, this is what they're going to live on for the rest of their life. And they're headed back from war they're famished, they're carrying all this extra stuff, and this guy, Melchizedek, walks out, and he provides them with food and with drink and rest and cares for them. And in response to that, Abraham gives him a tenth of everything they've just taken. Keep in mind that that everything is his safety net. That's what's going to set his family up. To, to be cared for. That's what's going to allow him to be a proper patriarch to the people that are under his umbrella of, of uh, care. And he gives a tenth of it away to Melchizedek. Abraham gave a significant amount of his wealth. 
that was going to be used to care for his family, to honor Melchizedek and to honor God. Church, what I want us to understand is that God told Abraham to leave, and he did. And he sets the example to put your entire trust in the word of God. When God says to do something, we do it. Abraham is putting into motion God's plan for all humanity by walking in obedience to what God has told him to do. As we've seen today, the giving of gifts is a significant part of the human experience. It's something that all of us have done. We've given and we've received. We know what that feels like, both to give and to receive. It was first put in place by God giving Adam and Eve life, giving them the garden, putting them in charge of it, giving them children. And it's been reciprocated to God and to one another ever since. It is part of who we are and what we do. You can go to any culture and gift giving is a part of that culture. And it's part of who we are as human beings because God is a giver of gifts. We are made in his image. That desire to give comes from him. So thinking about the gifts that you give to God every week, I want you to ask yourself honestly, where do you fall on that spectrum? If we're thinking of the Cain and the Abel spectrum, where do you find yourself when you give to God on a weekly basis? Are you doing it out of obligation? Are you doing it out of love? And I want you to know, church, I have been very intentional about not knowing what any of you give. I'm very purposeful about that because I don't want to know. That's between you and God. And so today, as I'm making that statement, I don't want you to be sitting there thinking, God, how dare we'll look at the amount of money I'm giving and say that I'm not giving it for the right reasons. I don't know what you're giving and I don't want to know. What I'm asking you today, what the Lord is asking you is, why are you giving it? And if it's for the wrong reason, that doesn't mean just stop giving it. It means we need to let God address the heart problem that we have, right? If, if for those of you who have kids or have been a kid, if you get in trouble like on Christmas Eve, does that mean we cancel Christmas? You follow my logic? No, it doesn't because we're still going to give the gifts, right? We're going to have to deal with the discipline, but we're not canceling Christmas. If we're doing it for the wrong reasons, it doesn't mean that you stop. It means you address the reason. You have a conversation with God. Let him work in your heart. Let him address the problem and walk in obedience to him. The giving of an offering on Sunday morning is not something that we do because we're supposed to or because we're required to do. The intent is that it is an act of worship. It's us giving a good gift back to God. It's intended to be a gift that's given in the same way that God has given to us. It's intended to be a gift that is given in the spirit of Abel, in the spirit of Abraham, out of thanksgiving for what God has done for us. And if your giving hasn't been out of worship for love, doesn't mean you need to stop. If giving's been a struggle for you, let God work in that area of your life, just like he did in the rich young ruler. Let him address the heart problem, but don't be like the rich young ruler and just walk away because the problem's not going to go away. The problem is our heart if that is what we're struggling with. God's desire is that when you give that it blesses you. Have you ever given a gift that's really good like a spouse or a significant someone where you've thought for a long time, maybe you've saved and scrapped pennies so that you could buy that gift and then you get to give it away and your heart feels like it's going to explode? Have you been there before? Man, that's amazing. And that's how God wants us to feel when we're giving to him. 
Not out of a, God, let me write this check or let me put the money in the plate because I'm supposed to. God's calling us to know Him and He's going to use our finances to do that. Because like we see in the rich young ruler's life, often that's an area of struggle for us. Especially in a Baptist church when the preacher's telling you to give more, which is not what I'm doing. I want to end with this story um, and we'll be done. I want to, and I want to say this too, God doesn't need your money, but He wants your heart. That's what's significant here. That's what I want you to leave with today. A few months ago, we were talking about our finances here at the church, and we were talking about the fact that they were pretty low, and I asked all of us to pray and ask the Lord if we should change anything about our giving, and so I did that. And so a couple of weeks went by, and I felt like the Lord was really impressing on me that I needed to step up my giving. And I'll, I'm not going to tell you the number, but I'll tell you it was a significant amount for us. If you look at the number on a piece of paper, you're going to go, well, that's nothing. But I'm a single-income household, so it was significant for us. But I felt like the Lord was doing it, and so I did. And a couple of weeks later, I get notified that my income is increased every month. And guess how much it was increased by? The exact amount that God told me to give. Now, that's not always going to be the case. But often it is, because what God is interested in is not the measly little amount that I was putting in the offering plate. What God was interested in was what I do, what he asked me to do, even if it felt uncomfortable. Church, that's what I want for all of us. Not that you're like me. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm asking you to walk in obedience to God, to let him stretch you in the area of your finances, because he is going to bless you when you do that. This is not like, you know, you're going to write a check for $100 and God's going to give you 1000 That's not what I'm preaching. I'm preaching that if we walk in obedience to the Lord, if we do the things that he's asking us to do, it's going to change our relationship with him. We're going to know him in a better way. That's what I want for you guys. That's what I want for myself. I know that I'm not the only one that has that kind of experiences. You've heard stories like that. Glenn shared those many times. You've heard that from others. But here's the thing. God wants all of us to have similar experiences where we place our whole trust in him, where we write the blank check, as David Platt often says, where we say, God, no matter what the cost, I'm going to do what you call me to do because I know that you're going to take care of me, that in faith, I know that you will, be care, you will care for me. I want to end today with one of my favorite lyrics from a Hillsong United song, and this has been a catalyst in my life on several occasions to trust God. This one y'all are familiar with, but I hope that this message will do the same for you today. It says, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon these waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wonder, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Let's pray. God, I ask that as we think about our gifts this week, God, I ask that you would take us into depths that we wouldn't go on our own. Father, not just for the sake of more income for the church or less income for us, but Father, for the sake of knowing you. Father, you know my heart. You know that I could care less about the amounts that come in. Father, what I'm concerned with and what we know that you are concerned with is the heart behind what we do. So God, I ask that you would work in my life, work in the lives of my brothers and sisters that are a part of this church, that you would lead us to step out in faith, to trust you. And Father, that in response to that, that you would bless us in knowing you in a deeper way. Jesus, we love you so much and we're so thankful that you are close enough to us, that you desire to know us to this level. So Father, we ask that this week, in the midst of the, the stress of storms and the stress of life, Father, you would give us an opportunity to trust you, to put our faith in you alone. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.